Trevor and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 170. Here's a Boo Crew Fright Fact Halloween edition. Orange and black are Halloween colors because orange symbolizes the autumn harvest and black symbolizes the darkness this time of year. This time around, we are joined by legendary actor Michael Gross. He's hanging out with you to talk about his latest film, the seventh entry into the Tremors franchise, a time of release available now on digital Blu-ray and DVD. It's called Tremors Shrieker Island. Hear all about his horror firsts, the magic of Tremors that keeps us returning to the world of the Graboids, developing the lovable survivalist superhero Burt Gummer, sequel ideas that never happened, and so much more. And also, on a very special edition of Horror Homework, Joel Mears, editor-in-chief of RottenTomatoes.com, stops by to talk about what they got going on with suggestions on the best flicks to watch during the spooky season. Put a candy bar in the freezer and get ready for episode 170. Let's go! The Boo Crew dusts a fright flick off the shelf for Horror Homework. Launching in 1998 by three undergrad students at UC Berkeley, it has become the most trusted and referenced source for film and TV reviews on the planet. In reverence of the spookiest time of the year, as many of us are celebrating the season from home and are looking towards our screens to help us keep the spirit alive, immersed in our favorite entertainment, some extra attention is on their Scare Central Hub. Here to tell us all about it is the editor-in-chief of Rotten Tomatoes, Joel Mears. (laughs) That's quite a lovely intro. Thank you so much. Well, Joel, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, first of all, we just want to know before we get into things, are you a horror fan yourself? I am a massive horror fan and have been for a very long time since my older brothers forced me to watch the Freddy Krueger movies at the age of about six. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So tell us a little bit about what sort of experience the Scare Central Hub is offering us on Rotten Tomatoes. When you go to Rotten Tomatoes throughout the month of October, actually always, it's always there ready to scare your pants off, but it's particularly attractive to people during October. We have a hub section called Scare Central. And at Scare Central, you'll find basically guides to nearly every kind of variation of horror you could possibly want to fill your Halloween viewing needs. So we've got the greatest horror films of all time, according to the Tomato Meter. This month, we're actually unleashing a uh, suite of foreign language horror guides. So you're looking at the best French, the best Italian, the best Korean, the best Japanese, and not always foreign language, just foreign. So we've got Australian and New Zealand and also cultural. So we're going to have the best black horror films of all time as well. But we also have it divvied up by genre. So you've got slashers and zombies and vampires and all that kind of good stuff. We've got the underrated horror movies, rotten horror movies we love. We also have the worst horror movies of all time, according to the Tomato Meter. If you want to go there, I certainly do. Some of those films I actually thoroughly enjoy. Um, But we're trying to cater to everyone's needs and really inspire them when they're on their journey of discovery to what to watch to get in that scary October mood. Very cool. Well, when you're talking about these different subcategories from... You know, the best Wes Craven films, the best horror films of the 70s, the list goes on. Who compiles all that data? 
So we have a team at Rotten Tomatoes. I think one of the things that people don't understand about Rotten Tomatoes, or a lot of people don't, is that there are humans behind the numbers, in a sense. So when you're looking at the tomato meter score, it is essentially an aggregation. It's a percentage of the professional critics who gave something a thumbs up, right? But we also have an editorial team that works on a lot of original content. And so we have uh, team members who work with me and for me who are you know, looking at the data, so sorting by genre in a sort of data set, then putting it into a system that actually ranks things by tomato meter. If that list is essentially a best of list, that's how it's done. Otherwise, if we're doing sort of an essential list, which is one of those lists where we try to choose the films that really capture the essence of a genre or period, and that may include some rotten movies that critics didn't necessarily love, that's, that, that's human, um, human curation with you know, educated uh, journalists uh, at the helm um, and horror, also a horror, horror fanatic. Taking 2000's American Psycho, for instance, it finds itself mm. at number 200 on the best horror films of all time on, on the site. Oh, I feel like I feel a challenge coming on. Yeah, yeah, I'm just interested. I'm interested in this. So had a 69% tomato meter score, but an 85% mm. audience score. So whereas the critics might be divided. The audience response is much more favorable. And I found that often where some of our favorites share that same quality. What is the difference between those two numbers and what carries more weight as far as you're concerned? I love all my children equally. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the audience score and the tomato meter score have equal weight and are used by people in different ways. Um, just to explain the difference for those who aren't nerds about Rotten Tomatoes as I was before I actually joined the team. The tomato meter score is a measure of what critics thought of a film. So it's essentially a percentage that reflects how many critics or the percentage of critics gave that film a positive review, right? And we select those well. Those critics need to um, meet a certain criteria uh, that we have and publish on the site and you can all look at it. So they're the kind of professional critics who watch and review film and television for a living. The audience review is open to anyone. So you, I, um, John down the street, can go on to Rotten Tomatoes and rate a film or television show out of five stars. Uh, and the audience percentage is basically the percentage of the, the audience that has given it a positive review. So it's, you know, it's one, the general population, movie going, uh, TV watching population that is reviewing a film. And that's reflected in the, the popcorn bucket audience score. The other one is the professional critics. So yeah, sometimes those things deviate. A lot of the time they're very similar. I know people draw, you know, the, the ones with the big uh, deltas tend to draw the most attention, but a lot of the times they agree. And I think in terms of their usefulness, it's really up to the individual. So I, for myself, will you know, look at certain genres where I think I really, really want to know what critics thought of it. So, you know, independent films, if we're looking at big budget Oscar contender style things, I'm really curious as to what the critics are saying. I mean, personally, I'm, I'm curious as to what the critics are saying about everything. It's my job. Uh, but equally, there's a lot of genres that we find when we talk to people, comedies, horror movies, where they do lean towards the audience score. But it really is an individual preference. You know, I've, I've met people who say they won't look at something with a 90, unless it's got 90% above on the tomato meter score. I've equally met people who go, I don't even look at the critic score. They don't know anything. And I only want to know what the audience thinks. But I think the good thing is we give both information. I mean, we give a lot more information if you want to dig into it as well. It's all there to help you make your choice. The current list that we have are currently ranked by tomato meter, most of them. But you can dig in and see the audience scores if you want to. I've noticed that the audience score is always like super large, where as the critic one is a little bit smaller. So like you have a wider range of people's views and opinions on the audience score. 
But I wanted to ask you, what criteria does a movie have to have to be certified fresh? Ooh, certified fresh. We love our certified fresh. So those who don't know, uh, when you get 60% or above on the tomato meter, when a film or television show, we designate that fresh with a shiny red tomato. And if it's below 59, it's 59 or below, it's uh, rotten with a green splat. And that's on the tomato meter. Now, certified fresh is kind of like the good housekeeping seal of approval for that extra special film or television program. And it gets a special badge. And often the filmmakers and people involved get a nice trophy to say they were certified fresh. And the criteria for that is essentially 75%, a score of 75% or above. The score has to be stable. So if reviews are still coming in rapidly and it's at 75, then it's 73, then it's 78. We're going to wait until we know that that score has actually stabilized. And depending on the actual project, so whether it's a limited release film or a wide release film or a television show, uh, it has to have a certain number of reviews that are actually in. So just in the simplest case scenario, a big blockbuster film needs to have at least 80 reviews in and a score of 75% above. And that score needs to be stable. And that's when it's uh, designated certified fresh. Gotcha. So one of the benchmark categories that people are going to be looking at most is probably going to be Mm. the top 200 horror films of all time. So what are some of those titles certified fresh, ranked very high in the top five, the films that people should be going to check out and giving a good look this season? There's not many surprises here, I guess. Uh, Psycho is up there, as is Get Out from recent times. Alien, obviously, in the top 10, you've also got Nosferatu, A Quiet Place. There's a lot of, you know, these films that score very high in recent times do tend to get up to the top there. Also, Jaws is near the top. Another recent film, The Babadook. You've got your old school Frankenstein. It's a really fun mix of classics as well as sort of newer horror fare. I have some of my own personal favorites in this top 200, which I think is is really fun. You probably can't tell from my accent because I've lost some of it, but I am not from these parts. And one of my, I tend to have a, a fondness for Australian horror movies because uh, I'm Australian. And there's a film in the top 200 called The Loved Ones, which I'm not sure if you have seen, but it is a, a fantastic sort of spin on the torture porn genre about a young woman who is obsessed with what we would call the formal in Australia, but which is the prom here. And wants a date for the formal. And her dad goes out and finds her one, is all I will say. <laughs> Brings him home and then the drills come out. And it's a fantastic and sort of feminist spin on that genre, which is really interesting. And then another one of my favorites is The Descent. Neil Marshall's just awesomely scary uh, monsters, I guess they are. A movie which combines all the terrors of cave dwelling, cave diving or uh, spelunking, with things that go bump in the night and claustrophobia and friends having arguments, and it's just wonderful. Now, according to Rotten Tomatoes, what horror films are those must-sees from this year? We've had so many great horror films, especially, gosh, it seems like, I think last week alone, 10 new horror films came out. I mean, the streaming services are going hard this Halloween, I will say that. And there's some great stuff. I mean, I shout out to Shudder. I'm sure everyone comes out and shouts out Shudder, but they're doing some really incredible work in terms of both curation and originals. And it's a Shutter original that is actually one I would recommend called Host. I suspect you may have talked about it on this podcast at some point, but it was made during the pandemic. It is about essentially uh, life in the pandemic and a group of uh, friends doing a seance via, I don't know if it's called Zoom, but a video app <laughs> and all the things that go wrong there. Obviously, you know, 2020 was really 
set up to be a landmark year for horror, I think, with not just the Invisible Man, but we were due to have the Candyman reimagining or spiritual sequel. We were due to have A Quiet Place too. We were due to have uh, Halloween Kills. And I think what's been really interesting is those things moved off the schedule because of what's obviously happening with theatrical releases. It really did allow uh, smaller titles to seep up through um, their streaming platforms and get more attention like host. But it also led to some really interesting box office successes in the horror genre at the drive-in. But movies like Relic and The Wretched, which are also on the list, really became box office hits by way of people sitting in their cars and wanting to experience something scary in a communal environment. Uh, And I love Relic as well, which I saw at Sundance. And for those who don't know, it's a sort of haunted house movie about a grandmother who's going through dementia and that's sort of expressing itself in the haunting of her house. And it's a really beautiful metaphor. What about streaming TV series? I mean, Mike Flanagan's got the new Haunting of Bly Manor. There's things like American Horror Story. Where does some of these sit in the list? So, yeah, I mean, we're looking at the scariest TV shows of all time or the best uh, scary TV shows of all time. The Haunting of Hill House, obviously, from 2018, Mike Flanagan's, I think, a small masterpiece, to be honest, is right up there. And then obviously it's back on everyone's minds this month with The Haunting of Bly Manor, which is, you know, I I was lucky enough to see a few months ago and, and think is really, really solid as well. The one that I love in terms of uh, scary stuff on TV currently, and it's actually, I believe, just now become available on Netflix after having its first season run on CBS, is Evil. I'm not sure if you guys have watched Evil. It's wonderful. It's got Mike Coulter and Katya Herbers. I believe that's how you pronounce her name. She was in Westworld as Ed Harris's daughter, and he's obviously Luke Cage. And he's a priest, uh, very devout, Um, who communes with angels, and she's a sort of more cynical, non-believing therapist. And they team up to investigate supernatural phenomenon cases. So it's got a lot of the X-Files to it. Um, But it's a really updated, uh, interesting formula, and they go hard. There's like actual demons and monsters and stuff, and it's by uh, Robert and Michelle King, who created The Good Wife and The Good Fight. So it's extremely smart and layered. So if you haven't seen Evil, I think it's a great Halloween watch. It's not too much. It's 10 episodes, I believe, first season, now available on Netflix. I've actually got, there's a film coming out on Netflix towards the end of the month. And because it's not yet officially released, it's not on any of our lists, but I can tell you it will be uh, if, if, if the scores are what I think they're going to be, called His House. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of this one or seen the trailer. No. It's a, again, a twist on the haunted house genre by a first ta- a first time British filmmaker, writer and director, Remy Weeks. It premiered at Sundance. It's essentially about two African refugees who are in London and get assigned a house while their application is being processed. And they're in a kind of probation period as asylum seekers and something has come over the seas with them and is in their house. And it's very terrifying, but really visually and culturally something we don't really often see. So I'd say watch out for that one. I think it comes out the night before Halloween on Netflix. So there's a lot of fun stuff to look forward to. And if you keep your eyes trained to Scare Central, that's where uh, you'll find a lot of it. What about a few horror hidden gems people are discovering? I mean, there are so many horror hidden gems, aren't there? My one, and I don't know for listeners of this podcast whether this would necessarily be considered a hidden gem, but when people are casual horror fans or just looking for something scary, I always go to The Strangers, which is actually not fresh (laughs) on the tomato meter, which, um, you know, to my mind is a crime against horror. I actually wrote about it in our first book, Rotten Movies We Love. So 
sorry to give that a plug, but kind of got it. <laughs> and I love The Strangers because it's this, I, I don't know if I need to describe it for the people here, but cabin in the woods, essentially, couple going through some issues, knock on the door, motiveless, masked trio terrorizes them for a night. There's not much to it, but my gosh, <laughs> is it scary? Um, Brian Bertino, I'm allowed to say this, the embargo is lifted. He's got a film coming out this month, I believe, to Shudder called The Dark and the Wicked. I've also been fortunate enough to see and is very, very scary and very good. I'll go on Hidden Gems just on Brian and, and The Monster. If, I was, if those who haven't seen The Monster, watch The Monster. I don't know what streaming service it's on. It might be on Netflix, but it's a film that he made about a mother played by Zoe Kazan and her son who get caught in a car and there's a monster outside. And it's one of those sort of single location really tense movies and he just has such chops when it comes to ratcheting up the tension that it's a really effective sort of you know claustrophobic survival thing and it's probably 80 minutes i stress this because i am one of those people who doesn't always love a long movie <laughs> and it doesn't always have time oh another hidden gem can i sorry you're probably gonna edit me out i don't know if this is a hidden gem as well i live and breathe this stuff so i'm kind of like how many people know this and i'm you know your audience is going to be so educated but the wailing the korean film I don't even know how to describe what it's about because <laughs> after watching it, I definitely had to do one of those explain the whaling to me on Google's, but it's a wonderful Korean film. It is two and a half hours long. So it is not the monster. It's not host, which is 60 minutes about a small town in South Korea. People getting murdered or are they something's happening? Weird shaman is in town. Is it him? Quirky police investigators, kind of Coen brothers esque, gruesome zombie-esque things happening and it's definitely worth your time if you want to sit there patiently and be scared and then also uh, do some research into what the <clears throat> happened afterwards as far as horror fans go like during the month of october or maybe people that don't necessarily love horror is there like a certain subgenre that they're going to like slashers or horror comedies paranormal like is there one that's more popular than the others? Generally, you know, traffic patterns vary on the quality of the thing, I would say. And I say traffic patterns, sort of peeling back the layers. I won't give out numbers, but, I, you know, we're seeing what people are clicking on in terms of films and television titles that Rotten Tomatoes. So you'll see something like The Haunting of Blind Manor, for example, which comes out and Netflix has put its full marketing um, uh, might behind it. And every time you turn on your Netflix, it's like, blind matter, blind matter, blind matter. So that'll see an uptick in that. And then Hill House, et cetera, an interest in that sort of thing. And then Mike Flanagan's other work. And so I can't tell if that's really like a, a gravitational pull towards the haunted house genre or whether that's just Netflix being canny. But I would say we see a lot of, you know, there's a lot of interest zombies, really. I mean, <laughs> if I'm thinking about what the general audience tends to gravitate towards, I think the zombies and vampires, because there are so many variations of that genre that you can get into. It's a really open playing field in a sense. So I, I say this because The Walking Dead remains so extraordinarily popular. And because also this year, we've seen the enormous popularity of Korean zombie films on Netflix, specifically when Train to Busan landed on Netflix, it went bananas but equally alive on netflix at the moment so there's kind of like in kingdom the series on netflix which if you haven't watched kingdom on netflix like after this podcast don't stop the podcast go and watch kingdom on netflix <laughs> it is a period zombie drama in uh, south korea um so i think the thing about those 
sort of folkloric monster types, vampires and zombies, there's such uh, creative spins being putting put on them that you can have the super scary, you can have the funny, you can have the friendly for the whole family versions. Similar, similarly with witches and stuff. So I think I think that's kind of where people gravitate towards that traditional Halloweeny type theme on which there are there's kind of something for everyone at the buffet, if that makes sense. And then as far as like family friendly horror movies, I feel like I hear about the same ones all the time. Like, you know, Hocus Pocus, Casper. Is there any like hidden gems that are appropriate for families that maybe I'm not thinking of that the general public doesn't know about? If we can classify it as a hidden gem, Monster House. I don't know if people have seen how widely seen Monster House has been in the United States. It's a animated gem from about 2006. It's about essentially the Boo Radley-esque house at the end of the street, except that the house itself is a monster and physically comes alive. And it's really, really funny, really charming. It captured that sort of stranger, it's animated, I should say, but it did capture that Stranger Things 80s kid movie vibe, you know, 10 years before they went there. Um, So I really, really love that film and would, would highly recommend it. I think there's you know, there's your Frankenweenies and your Paranormans, which are really fabulous as well. And I can never be asked this question without always giving a plug to The Witches from 1990, which is probably one of my favorite films of all time, growing up as a Roald Dahl reader, and then also having an interest in horror because of my torturing older brothers and seeing those things come together in a film that was actually age appropriate for me to watch, not like A Nightmare on Elm Street, but also be this charming, inventive adventure movie is so wonderful. And of course, Angelica Houston as the Grand High Witch in that film is just phenomenal. So The Witches is great. And also horror fans, it's directed by Nicholas Rogue. So who did Don't Look Now and knows a thing or two about how to make you uh, <laughs> sully your trousers. <laughs> but And also the interesting thing about it, which is that obviously if you've been following your, your trailers and uh, the streaming wars, HBO Max is releasing the new version of The Witches, which is directed by Robert Zemeckis and stars Anne Hathaway on October 22 or 23 this month. So you can do a double screening of the original and the great um, and the new one, which we don't have a score yet for and don't know how it's going to be, but I think it looks pretty fab. I was wanted to point out, too, that there's a great article you did on how 2005's House of Wax remake is an underrated film from the 2000s that you enjoy. And it got like a 26 Rotten Tomato score and a 42 percent audience score, reminding us that it is all very subjective, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, the number itself is not subjective. It is purely a percentage, but obviously the the critical analysis that uh, feeds into that number is subjective. And we all have uh, you know, our own takes and our own opinions. And I think that's why, you know, when I came in, I was like, the first book that we're going to release as Rotten Tomatoes is Rotten Movies We Love. And it's going to be about, it's going to be written by the staff and, it's, and, and a handful of critics, big names, <laughs> and talk about the movies that are generally given bad reviews, but that they actually have a passion for. For me, House of Wax featuring a good, and I'll stand by that performance by Paris Hilton, is a really strong, fun remake and does exactly what it needs to do. Equally, um, in Rotten Movies We Love, we speak about, well, I actually wrote about, although I'm uncredited, I was writing about it. I know what you did last summer. I'm definitely a child of that late 90s or mid to late 90s, early 2000s 
slasher boom, which was not high in quality, really, when we think about it. But if you saw those movies at that time, you may have had some sort of nostalgic feel about them still. And I certainly have that. And, you know, that's, again, we just launched a podcast called Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong, because we also know that the kind of conversations people have about the scores are that they disagree sometimes. And we're embracing that. So for Halloween, we're doing, you mentioned Hocus Pocus. We're going to talk about Hocus Pocus. No one talks enough about Hocus Pocus, right? And we're also going to be looking at Vampire in Brooklyn, which is 10% on the tomato meter and obviously a um, film that was much derided at the time of its release, but which has a pretty rabid, if smaller, uh, cultish fan base. I could go on about Rotten Movie that I love. I love, I love Cursed. Wes Craven's terrible 2005 uh, movie that tried to do what Scream did to Slashers to Werewolves. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, there's all sorts of controversy about that when it came out with oh. rewrites and all, all sorts of stuff. Please, if you, if you have an afternoon, go to the Wikipedia page, <laughs> scroll down to production and you'll have a ball. But that movie is like, for me, I think House of Wax is actually pretty well made and a good film and that, you know, enjoyable. I think Cursed is problematic and has its issues, but it's very fun to watch. But, you know, we're talking about a list. We have a list of the worst horror movies of all time on the site. And again, this plays into that 1990s thing that I was, or I think it might have come out in 2000s, but being a 90s kid, uh, Urban Legends, Final Cut, <laughs> which I can't really defend uh, from a filmmaking or writing or whatever point of view, but I'm like, you know what? I had a great time watching that movie and I still do actually, and had a lot going for it and I enjoy it. And even though you're putting on the list Rotten Tomatoes, I think you're wrong. And I'm the editor-in-chief. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Joel, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. We really appreciate it, man. No, I'm, I'm so excited. Whenever we get the opportunity to talk about scary things, count me in. Awesome, All right, Joel. All right same, same to you. you. The Boo Crew will be right back. Yes, cities, nations, even civilization itself, threatened with annihilation because in one moment of history-making violence... Nature, mad, rampant, wrought its most awesome creation. For born in that swirling inferno of radioactive dust were things so horrible, so terrifying, so hideous. There is no word to describe them. This is Michael Gross, and you're listening to another terrifying episode of The Boo Crew. You don't know what you're up against. I got this handled. You got a genetically enhanced giant carnivorous worm with tunneling abilities loose on your private island. This species should be left to die. What exactly are we talking about? Shriekers. We have 48 hours to stop these things. Let's go, Ramboy. Burt Gummer. He's a freaking legend. Let's go. Count me in. She's culling the weakest from the herd first. Crap, that means I'm next. Welcome to the party, Burt. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim. 
Phantom crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. All right, here we go. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy studio is a legendary storyteller and comedian. He is an inane rhythm that has gifted him with a brilliant sense of comedic timing and at the same time, the poignancy and gravity to pull off drama and action to unparalleled effect. He has crafted all of those things into incredible characters that have been around for and will be around forever in cinematic history. Seven seasons of Stephen Keaton on one of the best loved television shows in the world, the Golden Globe and multi-award winning Family Ties. He has appeared in everything from Night Court, Law and Order, the Golden Globe and Emmy winning ER, The Young and the Restless, Curb Your Enthusiasm and so much more. In 1990, he starred alongside Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, and Reba McIntyre in one of the greatest creature movies ever made. A film directed by Ron Underwood, produced by Gail Ann Hurd, who also gave us Terminator, Aliens, and The Abyss. It mixed incredible state-of-the-art practical effects from the folks at the Oscar-winning House of Magic ADI. An enthralling and unique tone, combining humor with adventure, horror, and sci-fi. 30 years later, the seventh Tremors film is about to be released. Tremors Shrieker Island. Along for the ride on every single one is the lovable survivalist superhero Burt Gummer, played ingeniously by our guest today, the incomparable Michael Gross. I think you got the wrong actor. That was one of the the better introductions. I just wish my mother were alive to hear it. (laughs) Well, well deserved, sir. And congratulations on the film. And of course, 30 years of being part of the Tremors world. Well, it's been a great franchise. It's been a wonderful time. And uh, I just keep coming back for more because I love this character. And we all do. We all do. Now, I remember I saw the original Tremors when I was about 12 or 13. It was one of those gateway horror experiences that I was able to have with my father. And we had such a blast with it and how funny and exhilarating it was. And the thrill of watching the magnificent lore of these giant graboids, the mystery being solved before our eyes. Now, fast forward to today and I'm able to watch the seventh film. With my kids having that same experience, where do you think the magic lies in this franchise and story that keeps it alive and keeps captivating us throughout all these years? Uh, I think, well, uh, you know, nobody, nobody knows for sure what what magic is about or, because, or we'd make magic every single time. As Bert would say, we do the best we can with what we got. <laughs> and, uh, but um, I think the magic lies in several in several things. First of all, I think it's a fa- it's still a family film. Now, outside of some of the some of the dialogue, which some people may find too too raunchy. I know some in fact, some some parents still tell me, oh, I don't let my son say ass blaster. He has to say butt blaster. (laughs) (laughs) I don't allow him to do that. Aside from that, I think this is a very family family friendly film because. No human beings in this harm other human beings. The carnage comes from monsters. We generally speaking, don't fight each other. We fight monsters. You take a disparate group of people, say far left progressives and far right Republicans and bring them together. And they're always fighting. And you say, no, but we got to deal with this monster right now. Would you all please bury the hatchet for a little while and do that? And they do. Lo and behold, they band together with a common bond to slay these dragons. So um, I think that's a great thing. I will say something I've always loved about Bert. He's never met a, a weapon he hasn't liked, 
But in seven films, he's never intentionally turned that weapon on another human being. You might find you might find an occasion where uh, he's startled and turns and it realizes it's a, it's someone from behind it and then drops his weapon. But he's never said, I'm going to take this person out. It's always about the monsters. It's not about other people. So the body count comes from monsters, not people destroying other other human beings. And in that respect, I think it's still very much a, a strong family film. In, in, in days where there's a lot of carnage and chainsaw massacres and all that sort of crap, this is about the good guys, the humans, battling the bad guys, the monsters. That's simple. Going back to your childhood, were you much of a horror fan? Did you have an impactful moment with the genre as a viewer? Yes. Yes. You talk about your first time seeing Tremors. I can remember my uncle taking me and my cousin to his to a birth. He took us to a horror film for my cousin's birthday party. My cousin, Jim, is still alive. He's a few years older than I am. All the cousins were taken to a production of 19. I think it's 1956. Them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Them. Exclamation point. The giant ants. And that was a that was a moment for me. Them. I've got a DVD of that. It's still one of my favorite horror films. And uh, I absolutely loved it. I thought great creature effects for its day. Really spine tingling stuff and great philosophy about uh, human how what we this was as a result of our uh, dealing with uh, radiation and things like that. And the radiation may have caused these uh, caused these things to grow to giants. And I just absolutely loved it. And uh, so uh, I thought there was a lot of heart in it, too, trying to save the small children, the mother and children at the end uh, were captured and held uh, held in this colony of, of giant ants. So I love that. And that being said, I was also a great fan of the standard great old universal horror films. OK, the Draculas and uh, and Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and uh, oh, my God, the mummy. Boris Karloff. And I, I love those classic things. And I, we had a deal when I was a little boy, I could never stay up late. But on Saturday night, I was allowed to stay up late for a show called Shock Theater in Chicago. And it was, I think it was a locally produced thing. And every Saturday night at 10 o'clock, I could stay up and watch Shock Theater because there was another horror film on it. And uh, I remember to this day, I mean, what fun it was. I would put a, a Milky Way bar or a, no, three, sorry, three Musketeers bar in the freezer that afternoon. And my fun was watching, uh, watching Shock Theater and eating my frozen three Musketeer bar on Saturday night. That was the best. <laughs> that sounds that was amazing. That was my deal as an 11 and 12 year old. That's how I, yeah, I just, I just loved it. I'm going to start doing that, too. I love the three yeah. months here, bro. That sounds amazing. amazing. So <laughs> what, the, frozen, the frozen candy bar did it for That's me, amazing. <laughs> right. So fast right. forward to when you got the opportunity, obviously, when you started in the first Tremors to be a part of really a universal monster film. Did yeah. you realize at that time that, oh, my gosh, that what pulled you into it? It wasn't quite that legacy. I was just thinking very much, very much more in the present. And but what was exciting to me was after seven years of this kindly left of center Stephen Keaton, I played on Family Ties. The question 
loomed large before me, would there be a life after family ties and would it be a would would it be possible to play vastly different characters and tremors answered that in the affirmative uh thank god and within weeks of our ending family ties and with within just a few days of being at our family ties rap party i was on the set of tremors having had both questions answered yes there would be life after family ties and it could be a very different character and i i simply felt blessed by being there because it was such a different sort of opportunity. I guess my, in a sense, my, my breaking bad moment, you know, sure. uh, in, in a sense, the advantage of course, for breaking bad is it played multiple times, really established Cranston as that character and, and, and really showed his, his, his possibilities. Tremors was only out for about a week. You know, that was the, you know, if, if there were a downside to it, and I can do nothing about that. It would have been nice to have established myself. You know, it came out, it was out, out and gone very, very quickly and only found itself in the aftermarket video, you know, market. So um, th that's, you know, a, a sort of regret, but hell, everybody's got them. I've, I've been happy to have done this for 30 years because I've just so enjoyed the genre, you know, and it's a great character. How did you craft Bert? I mean, he's a guy whose humor exists in these amazing one-liners, but a serious delivery, right? Where it's almost like he doesn't oh, yeah. see the funny in what he's saying. He just spits right. it out like prose. One of the funniest things about Bert is, of course, he has no sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is, his, is his deadly seriousness. Comedy is about exaggeration. We all know that, right? Comedy is about, you know, and so he's, he's paranoid. He is, he has a, one of the large, largest cases of obsessive compulsive disorder I've ever seen in my life, but we take it to comic excess. And that's the beauty of it. I mean, that was written into the character. Now, having said, of that, having said that, I guess I had a, a dad who was a little OCD and I am too. You know, I, I, I won't go into everything, but you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not an obsessive counter or a hand cleaner or anything, but, uh, but, but I have a certain precision about labeling things and knowing where everything is and stuff like this. So I can take a little bit of my OCD, which my dad also had that, that by the way, is a very familial chemical thing, chemical brain chemistry thing. So I took our own family's OCD and took it to a great extent. And um, I never had paranoia, but I know people who've had, and so it, a lot of it was on the page. So I, I don't know. I think I just had to say the lines well that were already there. And then as time went on, I got into it more and more and more. The way he, the way he thinks, where, where there's danger everywhere, that the world is one big minefield and Bert doesn't have a map. And so he's got to constantly invent a map and think of everything that could possibly go wrong. So obviously he's a worst case scenario sort of guy, which in itself is fun too. And we just take it to comic excess. And a very relevant character for what we're all experiencing right now. Yeah. In people, people have said to me, how do you think Bert would have, would have dealt with this? Would, would he have, would he have not worn a mask because he's this kind of a uh, freewheeling don't tread on me sort of thing. And I said, are you kidding me? He he has had masks in his basement compound for years yeah. because he has been predicting 
biological Armageddon. Yeah. You know, it was going to be biological. It was going to be nuclear. It was going to be social. Armageddon was coming in whatever form. He didn't know. But I said, are you kidding? He has masks. He has body bags. I said, you know, he's ready for he's ready for the shit to hit. The <laughs> exactly. So I said, if anything, he was like, you idiots out there weren't prepared. I was prepared. He would be saying, he would be saying to the government and other and other people out there, you weren't listening to me, were you? You weren't listening when I told you it was going to be bad. So on top of yeah, this, he, is, he really is. Yeah. So the seventh movie, Shrieker Island, opens up to this massive universe. Can you give us a little plot summary of what people can expect in this thing? Well, just to say that I'm not giving too much away because you'll see this from the very beginning. We're in the South Pacific, we're in the Solomon Islands, this uh, private island out in the South Pacific. And Bert, uh, we begin again, I'm not giving too much away by Bert having run as far and as fast as he could away from civilization. Uh, Even a town of approximately 10 people wasn't was too big for him uh, with the government intruding in in his life. And uh, uh, he thinks he's gone away forever. And this is where he's going to spend his golden years. Uh, And so. Uh, He is dragged kicking and screaming back into civilization again to deal with monsters because nobody else quite can do it. And uh, that's one of the things I love about him is he doesn't want to deal with any of this. He's finished. He's done. Don't don't. I've, I've had it. And inside all that craggy. Uh, hard stone, hard scrabble heart of his is a heart that says, if people are going to get hurt, I've got to help. Because, number one, because they're too stupid to do it on their own. <laughs> but but, yeah. but I don't want to see anybody hurt. In this, you will see, there's a, there's a, a wonderful person, an actor named Richard Brake. Oh, yeah. Who, uh, who uh, plays a nemesis in this, very much a guy who doesn't listen, who is who Bert would say is is totally irresponsible and yet he wants to save that man's life he doesn't want to see him chewed up by monsters he will go to the aid of his nemesis just to save somebody from being killed and therein lies i think one of the reasons people like bert too because as impatient as he is with irresponsibility he doesn't want to see anybody hurt yeah working with director don michael paul what was the most challenging uh, scene to shoot Oh, that's a good. Well, you know, a lot of it has to do with just Don. First of all, Don Michael's been wonderful. You know, he helped regenerate this this franchise after 13 years of it being gone. There were 13 years between Tremors 4 and Tremors 5. And uh, there were people at Universal, a wonderful producer named Patty Jackson, who's now gone, but who wanted who had been fighting for this franchise for those 13 years and people weren't listening. She finally convinced the people at Universal uh, Home Entertainment to come back and take a second look. And so Don Michael came on. In some ways, they wanted to regenerate it and rejuvenate it for a new audience. It had been 13 years. People were used to different approaches. There were a lot of younger people who had never seen Tremors before and a new generation, really. So uh, Don Michael was very helpful. Having said that, I think the most difficult scenes were just the physical scenes 
we had flamethrowers in some cases in this. Who did I just give away a plot point? I don't know. But anyway, you know, Bert had weapons. That's no surprise. You know, in some cases, those were those were heavy tanks with we had the real propellant in them and dangerous things. I must tell you, I had never shot a flamethrower before, so they put a kind of chemical retardant or a, let's say a, a kind of Vaseline-like material on our faces because the heat was amazing. And so you could get a first-degree burn just by having the flame so close to you and the muzzle of the flamethrower. You had to be protected to a degree and, uh, you know, uh, the danger of that to a degree. It was the physical stuff not having things work the first time until so you're doing multiple takes. Either the camera wasn't framing it or it didn't look right or, I don't know, something wasn't quite right. And so it was doing it over and over again, sometimes with equipment on your back and stuff like that, that in the heat and the humidity of Thailand uh, got very trying. I must say in one of one something we were doing, a kind of stunt where they really needed my, I won't tell you it was because I don't want you to just want to spoil the fun and I want you to think, oh, poor Michael Gross when they see that scene, but I actually tore my rotator cuff in a fall I took. I just overextended and fell out the wrong way on my shoulder. And so I had to do the first, I'm sorry, this, the last two weeks of the film with a torn rotator tendon in, in my shoulder. And so with all the machetes and stuff like this, it was, I existed on muscle relaxants and painkillers for the last two two weeks of the film finally needed uh, needed surgery which we we couldn't do it's a it's a it's a long long recovery process surgery on a shoulder so i'm always thinking of fascinating and inventive ways to hurt myself <laughs> and, uh, oh no so that's the most difficult thing in terms of dealing with don michael he's uh, extremely upbeat has more energy than than the ever ready energizer bunny and, uh, I don't see where he gets it, but it just keeps going and going and going. And so uh, that kind of energy is, is helpful to all of us. Even when I want to tell him to shut up and take a break, he's, he's there to pump us through. And uh, so, you know, it was probably the physicality of it that was the most difficult. Are you aware of any, let's say, weird sequel ideas that were maybe tossed around but never used? Well, um, I will tell you one idea I had for the uh, third sequel, which was Tremors 4, you know, the, the uh, prequel. And uh, where I played my own great, I forget, it was grandfather, great-grandfather, played the, the, that grandfather. And this was soundly rejected. I wanted to play my own great-grandmother. <laughs> I wanted to play. And my, I had this, I had this, I, I'll just tell you, you know, it's something that never came to pass. But I always saw Bert's grandfather as this very diminutive, almost dwarfish-like man who was this little guy who could never get a woman. And so ordered a mail-order bride from out east. And off the stagecoach stepped this six-foot-three female who probably couldn't find a mate anywhere herself. She was not particularly attractive. But he had paid to, so so he, he was, you know, she was he, at least two heads taller than Bert's grandfather. And my idea was not to do a parody of a female, but to actually portray a female in the same way that Dustin Hoffman did in Tootsie. I mean, I really wanted to sell the idea of this was a female. This was not 
poking fun at a female. I wanted the wardrobe, the makeup, the hair, the, I wanted to be, but, and I thought it'd be fun if she was this tough assed female who stepped off the, and was all, and so Bert inherited that weird world, eccentric world of his through the female line, not the male line. And, uh, you know, that his grandfather was actually kind of wimpy and it was actually his grandmother who was this kind of kick ass <laughs> woman. <laughs> and well, needless to say, the idea was rejected. They were just like, Michael, calm down. We think we're taking it far enough. We do not want you to play your own grandmother. So just back off and play your grandfather. So now that was an idea of mine in that in that third one is just being an actor. I love as far afield as I can go. I mean, witnessing this, I wanted to have a very different look at the beginning. I said, I just, I, let's shake this up a little bit. Let's take him in the middle of nowhere and let's take him out of civilization. And, 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 and let's, let's have a woman come back. I wanted a female in this. People have been crying and screaming and, you know, gnashing their teeth that, that we, that Heather never came back, Reba McIntyre. And because she wasn't about to come back, I said, I want a woman in here. He's never dealt with a woman. And I specifically wanted a woman who would take him to task for his lifestyle, who would say, Hey, look, I speaking as a man who's been married for over 36 years. I have a wife who, and this is their job is to, to look at a man and say, you're doing this all wrong. <laughs> really? <laughs> you, you are making a terrible choice here. What the hell is wrong with you? That's what wives do. They remind us how flawed we are, right? Yeah. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, a male would not do that because they'd be, it would, because they'd be, now I can't talk to Bert. Gummer by like like that, but a woman could. She just say, "Yeah, what the hell's wrong with you, man?" And so I, we specifically wanted that in this piece. We wanted somebody to say to him, "This just doesn't cut it. It doesn't cut." To challenge him, you know, because Bert always feels himself himself in a place of safety, and we want to knock him off his his place of safety, not just with the monsters, but personally as well, you know, emotionally as well to take him to a place where he's challenged, not just by the monsters, but the, by the monsters within, if you will, mm, you know, very well said. Talking yeah, yeah. about sequels and continuing the legacy. Do you think that tremors will continue on and would you want to be part of anything that goes along with it? Any more sequels or is there an end for you? This could be, I, uh, you've seen the film. Yes. Okay. Okay. So uh, without giving away any spoilers, I, there's a part of me that feels that uh, universal home entertainment might've had enough of tremors. Okay. The suggestions that were made in the course of this made me think, ah, maybe they've had enough that seven. Now I'm, they came to me and said, what if, what if we ended it at seven? And I said, Hey, I, you know, I thought we were over at four. I thought we would finish it at four. So seven is a blessing. So I said, whatever you choose to do, I'm good with that. That being said, the door is still open for, uh, for an eighth tremors. Uh, it may seem unlikely by what people see on the screen, but it is, it is possible. 
in the course of what they've done here, that there could be an eighth. Let me, and if there were, and if it were an interesting story, I would be up for it because Bert is always a great deal of fun. It would depend on his physicality, how much they want me to do. Uh, I, if it's in another two years, I'll be 75 years old by that. Have you realized that's only five years till 80? You know, that, and so the fact that I, at 73, I'm an action adventure hero now, still a surprise to me. So I will continue to hope uh, and pray that I stay in shape and uh, could do what is asked of me if it is asked of me. Now, show business is maybe three or 4% show and 95 to 97% business. We all know that. So let me just say that I think that another sequel will be driven by the response to this one. If they are making hand over money, hand over fists and say, oh, my God, what a gold mine. If people respond to this, I would find it very likely that Universal would come to me and say, you know, Michael, we think we're going to make an eighth one, you know, so. That, that is out of my hands. It's in the hands of the, uh, the purchasers and, and how much Universal thinks it's worth it for them to do this. Uh, I've always enjoyed it. That's why I keep coming back. I, Bert Gummer is a survivalist, and I guess Michael Gross is too, because I'm the last man standing. So many others have dropped away, but I cannot refuse the call when somebody says, Bert Gummer. <laughs> <laughs> He's back. <laughs> because it's like it, these, um, the original writers, Brent Maddock, S.S. Wilson, Ron Underwood, the director, they created comic gold 30 years ago. And if somebody says to me, here's a pick, here's a little dynamite, you want to continue mining that comic gold? It's a little hard for me to resist. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. We so appreciate yes. it. It's a, it's a pleasure. And of course, your job is to tell your husband how wrong he was today. And <laughs> how could it improve? And Leo, just back up the womb. Don't get in the middle of that fight. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 170. Special thanks to our guest, Michael Gross. Follow at Michael Gross Biz on Twitter and check out the awesomely fun monster flick Tremors, Shrieker Island, at time of release on digital Blu-ray and DVD now. Watch it with the whole family. It's awesome. Also, thanks to our guest, Joel Mears, editor-in-chief of RottenTomatoes.com. Take a look at their horror recommendations and their Scare Central portal right now. Production tracks for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time. It's the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! The Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.